Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, in our last episode, we took an old topic and made it new. (laughs) (laughs) We we had friend of the pod, Jonathan Collins, come on to talk about how to make school boards more participatory. And he was really making the argument that, you know, like the common school movement in a lot of ways really had it right. That the, you know, the idea that if you're going to, you're going to, you know, train people to to be self-governing, then schools have to be the place where they learn how to do that. And in many ways, we're doing something similar in this episode. We're taking a very old topic and a very old debate and making it fresh and new. (laughs) I feel like that places a lot of pressure on those of us who uh, have some passing familiarity with what came before. Yeah, we're going to be talking about making Americans, which was an obsession for policy elites in education and elsewhere in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it's something that has become an obsession in our current times, but an obsession that is much more divisive than the movement of approximately a century prior, where there was real agreement bordering on consensus around the role that schools should play in Americanizing immigrants. Certainly, there were problems with that consensus vision, uh, but there was also a lot of possibility in that there was widespread agreement that this was something that schools should be doing and that it would serve a broader social purpose. Now we live in quite different times, and we'll be exploring the ways in which these different times make this task all the more challenging. It's a big topic, obviously, and that means that I'm going to have to do some traveling. We're actually going to be visiting Lowell, Massachusetts. We're headed to Maryland, and we're headed someplace where the pod has never been before, Jack, Fargo, North Dakota. I think Elon Musk is building a rocket to get there. Now to the main event. This episode was prompted by one of my very favorite occurrences. That would be when a surprise book arrives in the mail. The book in this case was called Making Americans, Stories of Historic Struggles, New Ideas, and Inspiration in Immigrant Education. It's by a Massachusetts history teacher named Jessica Lander, who traveled all over the country and back in time to grapple with a key and very politically charged question. What does it take for immigrant students to become Americans? Her interest in that question was spurred by what she saw in her own classroom, one filled with newcomers all attending Lowell High School. Today, our school is about 3,500 kids. It's really, really large. And I have the honor and the joy of teaching recent immigrants from 30 different countries, young people who have come, some in the last couple of months and some in the last couple of years, from all across the world, from Colombia to the Democratic Republic of the Congo to Cambodia. But it's a really just vibrant school with students from, I think the count is more than 50 countries are represented in our school and so many different languages as 
as well are spoken in our school. Have you heard superfans may recall that our own Jack Schneider formerly taught at UMass Lowell, but that is just one of the things the city is famous for. As Jessica explains, Lowell and its high school have been shaped by wave after wave of immigration. Lowell High is the first integrated high school in the country, integrated at conception in 1831. And it has been home to newcomers really since the beginning of the school's existence. Lowell has been itself a a city of newcomers for generations. Think about the historic Lowell Mills and the mostly young Irish and English immigrant women who worked in the mills. And then we can think about the later generations of newcomers that came and brought all of their strengths and traditions and expertise to the community, making it such a vibrant city. Jessica's book is partly a travelogue. She left her classroom for a year in order to visit seven school programs for immigrant origin students. We'll be meeting some of the educators she encountered momentarily. But first, we need to climb into our time machine because it's impossible to delve into that question of how immigrant students become American without reckoning with the Americanization movement. That's the story of how schools across the country tried to assimilate a vast influx of immigrants at the turn of the 20th century. I have a personal connection to this time period because that is when my family came to the United States. My great-grandfather Daniel came with his family as Jewish refugees from what is now Ukraine. He arrived as a seven-year-old in 1906 to New York City. And at the time he arrived in the U.S., his language, his history, his culture, and his religion were not wanted or welcome in U.S. schools. U.S. schools at the time, at the height of the Americanization movement, for the most part, had a very narrow sense of what it meant to be American and what it meant to educate immigrants. Immigrants were strongly encouraged and sometimes forcibly required to abandon a lot of their identities. That had a really profound impact on young people and what they chose to bring with them into adulthood, what they chose to teach their children, what they were told was valued in their new communities in the U.S. I feel that in my own family's traditions of what we lost, the languages that were not carried forward, the history that was not passed down. And so that had a really profound impact on my own family's story of learning in the country. The history that Jessica chronicles is also one of resistance and organizing as earlier waves of immigrant families pushed for schools that didn't treat them and their cultures as enemies. Schools have changed a lot in their policies and their programs and their practices in terms of thinking about newcomers. And we see that work and that change happen because of so many courageous individuals who have stood up for immigrant origin students throughout the last 150 years. We could talk about Robert Meyer, a parochial teacher in a one-room schoolhouse in rural Nebraska, who was arrested in 1920 for teaching the Bible in German during recess. He ends up taking his case all the way up to the Supreme Court. In 1923, the Supreme Court comes back in favor of Robert Meyer, enshrining the right for young people to learn languages other than English. Because in 1920, about half the states in the country did not allow students in schools to learn languages other than English. We see the work of and the advocacy of parents like the Mendez family in Westminster, California, who when they went to enroll their kids in school were told, you can't go here. You have to go to the segregated, quote unquote, Mexican school. 
And they don't back down. They organize with families and they bring their case up through the courts and they help to integrate schools in California, which then has also an impact later on nationally for some of the precedent it set. The cumulative effect of all of that organizing has been major shifts in policies and programs, making schools more welcoming to newcomer students over time. But despite all of this improvement, Jessica says that too often immigrant students are still viewed according to what they're lacking rather than what they bring. I'm struck again and again by all the strengths my students bring to our classroom, the ways in which they are cultural and linguistic navigators for the family, the ways in which they are bringing their expertise and knowledge gained from having lived in multiple countries and in multiple traditions and bringing that into our classroom so we can learn from each other, the ways in which they've developed grit and perseverance from having navigated systems and are currently learning in a new land and creating homes in a new land. I'm also struck by the ways in which our schools don't always recognize all these strengths that our students bring. Take, for example, the various ways schools have of designating students who don't yet speak English. If you look at the term English as a second language learners, for one, that's just not accurate for many of my students. I think about my student, Robert, who I write about in the book. For Robert, it's ETL, not ESL. It's English as a 10th language. And just thinking about the language strengths our students bring, but also thinking about just even the term English as a second language or English language learners, it focuses us on the deficit, on what our students are not yet mastered, not instead focusing on all those strengths they have. For me, when I'm thinking about my students, I'm thinking about all those strengths. And I'm also thinking about how our schools can be investing more in those strengths, valuing those strengths, because they're important for our students to invest and grow and develop for themselves, and they're important for our community. Each chapter of Jessica's book recounts some aspect of our complicated history regarding schools and Americanization, but Making Americans is also a story of new ideas about immigrant education and the people behind those ideas. Carlos Biato is one of the stars of the book. He's the co-director of a nonprofit called Next Generation Learning Challenges, but long before that, he was teaching and working with immigrant students. And then one day, he heard about a brand new school in Prince George's County, Maryland, focused on competency-based learning for newcomers who were still learning English. And I thought, whoa, what a marvelous idea. What an innovative idea. Like we're starting with the kids that are furthest from opportunity and working from there. And it would be a school that would be the, the first of its kind in the state of Maryland. I interviewed, I got it. But I think one of the things I would say about International High School at Langley Park that I love is that we were very intentional about every single aspect of the school community from hiring and the way we hired people was entirely different to the way that we formed our advisories where we carefully interviewed every single student who they lived with. We were very in their business, but it was very purposeful. So we understood exactly who they were, what they needed. And then we took all of that information to empower the students to own their narratives, to own their stories, and to make something of that story. 
more on that concept of competency-based learning that Carlos got so excited about. Here, it means basically that students shouldn't be penalized because they don't yet know English and that their exposure to content shouldn't be limited while they're trying to master their new language. In other words, it's a very different approach to educating newcomers than what's mostly still the norm. Carlos says that's by design. His vision of what immigrant education could look like is in many ways a response to his experience growing up and attending school in the Bronx. I grew up as an English learner, and I was also undocumented growing up. I was in bilingual classrooms until the fourth grade. I was transitioned into a monolingual classroom in fifth grade. And that was, I would say, where I first experienced a level of feeling different because of being a language learner. I remember being in fifth grade and my teacher walking by with middle school applications to basically the honors middle school. I remember her skipping right by me. It made me feel a certain kind of way, obviously, at that young age, feeling like you've been looked over even though you've been working so hard at school. Carlos would go on to attend Middlebury College, becoming the first person in his family to go to college. He's also a citizen now. And he explains that the school he helped found is centered on helping students become citizens themselves in the broadest sense of the world, no matter where they come from or what education level they arrive with. We treated our kids as the citizens that we would want them to be in society. Then the academics came, the rigor, the everything else came after that. But I think centering ourselves in their humanity was the aspect that was most important for us in the school. International High opened its doors in 2014, two years before the election of Donald Trump. But Carlos says that the existence of the school was political from its inception. The NAACP actually was not an agreement of our school being open because they thought that it would create a separation of sorts. To that, I say our kids were going to school that where they're already feeling like they're a separate part of the community. They're either in one side of the building or in temporaries. And so what we were doing was that we were creating an inclusive community of students from all walks of life. Because the reality is that most of the students that attend U.S. schools are U.S. born. <laughs> and I think people don't really see that because they don't look past first impression, the color of our skin. Then, of course, came that sharp anti-immigrant turn from the White House, which, by the way, is just 20 minutes away from International High. Carlos says that the hostile rhetoric started showing up in interactions with other schools, including on the soccer field. Sports can get competitive, and that exists, the banter. But it got to a point where it got really ugly. And some of what, you know, was coming out of politics at that time was spilling down to the school buildings. And so some kids started shouting after the match, you know, they were like, you should go back to your country. You know, things that our kids who come from different countries normally hear. What we did with that is that we used it as a learning opportunity to build civility, not just with our students and helping them process 
process, what had happened, but also getting back in touch with the other team. And my assistant principal at the time did a really great job of building community across schools and across coaches. And so one of the things that they did was that they set up an entire thing after that happened, an entire practice where they had to work with each other. If you want to learn more about International High, by the way, you should check out Jessica's book because Carlos and the school he helped start are the subject of an entire chapter. But it's time for us to head north, far north, as a matter of fact, to North Dakota, home to Leah Jelke, the 2017 North Dakota Teacher of the Year. I actually grew up in Fargo, North Dakota. And so the interesting thing about that was that when I grew up here, the schools and the community were not as diverse as they are currently. And that is due to the fact that we are a resettlement city in Fargo, North Dakota. And so a larger influx of our refugee and immigrant friends started coming into the city about, I'd say, around the 2000s, 2001, about the time I graduated. Leah moved overseas after graduation. She taught English to non-native speakers, served in the military, and eventually found her way back to the same school she attended. But Fargo South was a school transformed, something that was made startlingly clear when she picked up an old yearbook. And I compared the year I graduated, 2001, to 2018. It was so interesting. In a, in a class of uh, 500 graduating seniors, you would look through and you would see maybe eight students who were not white born in North Dakota students. And now if you look at that population, you would definitely see, let's say, take a group of 500 people, you would see probably over a quarter of them were students who originally were not born in the U.S. and not English speaking, which is amazing because that's so great for our community, great for our culture. It just adds so much to life in general when we have people of those different perspectives and different walks of life. As Leah mentioned, Fargo is what's known as a resettlement community, meaning that refugees get placed here by a social service agency, in this case, Lutheran Immigrant and Refugee Services. When I asked Leah where these new Fargo residents are coming from, she said just about everywhere. Pretty much all over the world. I've had students from Myanmar, Congo, Sierra Leone, Liberia, a large group of Sudanese. We started getting more refugees and immigrants from Mexico and South America, which is within the last couple of years. North Dakota is a little further up there for them to maybe feel comfortable to go to, but our refugees specifically, I should say, don't really have a choice in that, right? So really all over, wherever Lutheran Social Services is able to resettle them in a community that has a good cost of living, we have great job market. I mean, we need people in this community of about 300,000 people to serve in many different jobs. I mean, we always have job openings. The other side of that is the weather is so harsh. Even for us growing up here now, it is so harsh that it's very difficult to get around when we don't have public transportation like New York or, you know, bigger cities. And school-age newcomers, no matter where they came from or how they felt about Fargo's weather, would end up in Leah's program within Fargo South High School. We had a sheltered instruction program for our refugee and immigrant friends who came in. 
specifically having high quality, those teachers who are qualified in teaching EL, but also teaching a content area as well in the math, science, social studies, and English. And then the students take classes with those teachers on different levels. And then throughout the day, they are immersed with the rest of the high school population for their other classes, such as electives and FIAD and health and so on. Okay, so by now, you should be picking up on a theme. Jessica, Carlos, and Leah are fierce advocates for their immigrant students, but they also believe wholeheartedly that communities benefit from immigration and that students benefit when schools are set up to welcome newcomers and help them thrive. But not everyone agrees. The anti-immigrant sentiment that students at Carlos' school heard on the soccer pitch was also on the rise in North Dakota, and Leah's students took it personally. My students being high school students between the ages of 14 and 21, they really were grasping onto some of those things because watching the news and being aware of what's going on in politics was something that we did within our class. For them to come here within months or years they're here and to really start hearing this amplified rhetoric of hate was just horrifying for them. In January 2017, members of the state legislature introduced a bill that would have effectively banned refugee resettlement within North Dakota, something that would directly impact Leah's students and their families. Now, a quick geography lesson, the state capital, Bismarck, you knew that, is three hours away from Fargo. And with Leah, then eight months pregnant, making the trip in order to testify against the bill was out of the question. So she asked if there were three students who might be interested in telling their stories, or whatever version of their stories would fit into the three-minute time limit for public comment. Half the class was like, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to go, I'm going to go anyway, even if you don't let me. Like they were just so adamant about wanting to go and speak. And I remember one of my students, she had gotten up there, read a piece from her story and she had a minute left and they thought she was finished. And they said, okay, thank you so much. You can have a seat. She goes, oh, I'm sorry, sir, but I'm not done yet. And she went on to explain like, I am an honor student, I am an ROTC, I am a vital part of this community, and I'm going to college to be this, and I am going to be doing this and giving back to the community of North Dakota. You, like, pretty much need me, is what she's saying. Back to Lowell, Massachusetts, home to Jessica Lander. That theme of immigrant students finding their voices is a recurring one in her book, Making Americans, and it's central to her own teaching at Lowell High. It's the energy of students bringing their expertise and their knowledge and their passions that have been nurtured by their lived experiences all over the world. And then working together, on having the courage to call folks, to email folks, which can be really intimidating for all young people, particularly when you're doing in a language you're still learning, to be thinking about how you craft proposals, working together, seeing kids from like four different countries huddled around a computer all working on a memo together to then propose to a city councilor or a community leader, and then presenting and just the pride in watching them first nervously present and then gain that confidence, then walk out of those meetings with people in power going, wow, people want to listen to us. Now, a lot has changed in the years since Jessica's book came out. 
First, the bad news. The temperature of the debate around immigration and the impact of immigrant students on public schools just keeps rising, including right here in Massachusetts. But there is also cause for celebration. Jessica was recently named Massachusetts History Teacher of the Year, a tribute to her skill in weaving the experiences of her students throughout her curriculum. When I asked Jessica what her students make of the fact that their teacher is so celebrated, she says that with students from 30 different countries and a wealth of their own stories, it isn't really about her. Mostly our classroom is a space to celebrate their voices, to celebrate their expertise. We are in the midst of putting together their cookbook. So each year in the beginning of the year, we write a cookbook celebrating their stories of migration as sort of the culminating project in our unit on the history of immigration of folks who came in the early 1900s. We end with their stories of immigration because they're a a central part of this longer story of the history of migration in this country. We're going to be working on an op-ed project soon where they're going to be writing op-eds about issues they care about. I used to say, we're, we're focused on their stories, their learning, and it's all those small moments, those conversations one-on-one, supporting each kiddo, celebrating them, and then also working with them when they're struggling through things. And then also the work we're doing together in helping them teach and lead in the community. A huge thanks to our special guests, Jessica Lander, Carlos Beato, and Leah Jelke. Definitely check out Jessica's new book, Making Americans, Stories of Historic Struggles, New Ideas, and Inspiration in Immigrant Education. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about the increasingly messy politics of immigration and education and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weed segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. Jack says that the conversation about chronic absenteeism has jumped the shark. What does he mean? If this intrigues you, which it should, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter. So, Jack, as I was working on this episode, I I just kept thinking that virtually every part of it is now highly politically charged, that we have immigration, which just keeps sort of ratcheting up and ratcheting up. But we also have this question that we've talked about on this show before, which is, you know, the role that schools play in defining what it means to be an American. And even the specifics of what we heard our terrific teacher panel talking about. You know, they're they're all very keen on action civics. Well, there are a lot of people on the right who view that as schools training kids to basically be little Marxists, right? Yeah. And to like, you're, you're creating social change agents and that is not what schools should be doing. And so I just found myself reflecting again and again, how like, how could such a feel good episode turn into one that is just in so many ways, like a, a sign of how crazy our political rhetoric is right now? It does feel like we are caught between the skilla of the left and the charybdis of the right here with no possible channel between them, right? That that any way of shooting the rapids there uh, is going to be completely unacceptable to either of those two sides. And I can't help but think that 
some of that is due to a lack of historical literacy on all of our parts, collectively speaking. With the right, I think there's a fealty to an imagined version of America's past in which immigration was always controlled and that it was controlled in a kind of responsible manner. And neither of those is particularly true, right? Immigration was largely unrestricted for most of America's early history and then became deeply racist. And I think the point to make about critiques of the left here would be that, you know, again, I'm going to reference a conversation with Johann Niem, that the move to create Americans through cultural institutions like the schools was not always as deeply problematic as it sometimes was, right? This is not to say that the movement of Americanizing immigrants that we see really rising in the late 19th and early 20th century in the public schools was in any way, shape, or form something that we would endorse today. It wasn't. However, I think that underlying idea that the schools can play an important role in bringing us together around a shared identity that does not, and this is the key piece, that does not do the thing that so many earlier Americanization efforts did, which was try to eliminate the racial or ethnic or linguistic identity, right? But instead creates a new identity. And actually there was a lot of that kind of activity going on in the early 20th century. I did a project many years ago looking at all of the ways that civic education and preparation for citizenship here in the United States happened outside of the schools, right? And it happened through voluntary organizations, through what today we would call the nonprofit sector. And it really was a case of a thousand flowers blooming and lots of different approaches. And I think that we have really given up on that idea because we imagine that the very worst instances were the typical or most common instances, or perhaps the only instances. And again, on the right, we have a, a total lack of acknowledgement of how immigration and Americanization actually played out. One thing that I kept thinking as I was talking to Leah and Carlos and Jessica is that, you know, they all three of them have this really broad vision of what schools do that I just, I found so refreshing and inspiring. And I'm contrasting that with, say, the way that schools are so often talked about in a place like Massachusetts, that here, as I mentioned in the episode, the debate over over immigration and immigrant students is really heating up. We, we have cities and towns that are saying, you know, they're they're too expensive, there's too much of a burden on our on our local schools. And then, but you know, so much of the sort of state understanding of of the role that schools play is that, you know, schools are there to to get immigrant students ready to take the our standardized test. And to the extent that, you know, schools fall short, it's because they don't do a good enough job in that. I think that's a really important point, Jennifer. And I think a slightly different way of putting it would be to say that it isn't just that 
neoliberal policies around assessment and accountability and the framing of the purpose of school have transformed the kind of basic infrastructure of education. It's also that the dominant rhetoric about schools and what schools are for has reshaped our psychological infrastructure for thinking about schools and understanding what schools do. So if you were to say to somebody, I think what we ought to have is more unstructured time in schools where students are together in a classroom with an educator doing things around curriculum, but that it isn't going to be dictated by the state and it isn't going to be measured by a standardized test. I think a lot of people would immediately view this as a waste of time. And I think that that is wrong. It isn't to say that it's going to be productive, but I think it's important to carve out space for all of the things that we would love to happen when we put different kinds of young people together in a school with a professional educator, and we say, do something valuable, right? Work together to find a way to make this time engaging and meaningful and productive. And we aren't going to define those terms. Now, you know, there's, there's a real risk there, right? <laughs> that it truly will be a waste of time. But I think the fact that we cannot, most of us, imagine that this might be a good use of time therefore limits what is possible inside schools, including the possibility that young people from all different walks of life and all different parts of the world could come together inside a school and could exit at the end of their schooling experience transformed by it, not just filled up with knowledge, but transformed in a way that actually makes them feel, for instance, more American without having been wiped clean of however they came in feeling at the beginning of their schooling experiences. Wow, Jack, that was truly inspiring. I mean, <laughs> you do sound a little bit like a hippie, but that's okay. And once again, you've set me up perfectly to transition to revealing the topic for this episode's segment of In the Weeds. And I've got an absolutely perfect example of what you were just talking about, that kind of our, our, the narrowing of our sort of psychological understanding of what schools do. That would be the quote-unquote debate un around the absenteeism crisis. Stating your frustration, I believe you used the words jumping the shark. <laughs> I just, I love the picture that I get in my head of the fawns on his water skis. That's why I use the phrase. Um, yeah, I, I invite people to listen to that conversation in the weeds. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to chat about, you know, for those who haven't followed this carefully, there is an increasing obsession with absenteeism and particularly chronic absenteeism. And there is a kind of expected knee-jerk reaction by policy leaders to remedy this through mechanisms that are both unlikely to work and, in fact, likely to exacerbate many of the underlying problems that lead to absenteeism. But for those of you who are ending your journeys here, thank you for coming this far with us. Thank you for being a listener of the show. If you haven't gone on and made sure that you're a subscriber so that you get the latest episode in your feed, go ahead and do that. 
Give us a review if you haven't already, although I think we have a lot of positive reviews of this, but it's just nice. It's, you can never have too many of those. Um, follow us on the site formerly known as Twitter. That's at Have You Heard Pod. We are also on Blue Sky now. I think we're just at Have You Heard on that, on that channel. Um, and we've got a book coming out in the spring. Pre-order now. It's The Education Wars, a citizen's guide and defense manual. And I think the website is educationwarsbook.com. That's correct. And if you do want to follow us in the weeds in order to hear Jack rant about the, <laughs> the paucity of the discourse around absenteeism, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. You'll see a list of the extras you can get just by throwing a few dollars our way each month. We do a reading list and we also to those very generous donors who give at the $10 a month rate, we send a paperback copy of our last book. So uh, if those things are appealing to you, please become a supporter today. And for everyone else, we'll see you back here in two weeks. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider, and it's not going to be a rant. <laughs> this is Have You Heard. <laughs>